If you're feeling weird and out of sorty, just hug your teeny tiny Norty. Your Norty is a friend. Pete Nordstrom is a friend. He hugs his Norty every night. Maybe that's too much information. (laughs) That's podcast gold right there. Thanks so much, Chris. Really good. everybody welcome to another episode of the nordy pod i'm pete nordstrom president of nordstrom and your host for this podcast join me as i take you on an honest authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life one episode at a time At this point, you've undoubtedly caught wind of my side hustle as a bass player, and more generally, my love for the unique community of musicians in and around Seattle. So in the spirit of that fondness, I'm super excited to share my recent conversation with local alt-rock legend and former lead singer of the Presidents of the United States of America, Chris Ballou. started playing music from a very young age and in the fertile soil of the Seattle music scene had no trouble assembling bands of like-minded punk rock compatriots. One such band being the aforementioned and super successful Presidents of the United States of America. You likely remember their catchy riffs and somewhat silly lyrics from hit songs like Lump and Peaches in the mid-90s, defining a style that even Madonna recognizes taking great care to appear as though they didn't care at all. But the rise of the Presidents wasn't Chris's first brush with fame. Having found his way onto a tour bus and spending a couple years with an up-and-coming singer-songwriter by the name of Beck, Chris learned valuable lessons about the music business and his own relationship to it. Though he does remain active in music and has done all kinds of things, and if you go back to the 90s from playing at large festivals in front of tens of thousands of people to being at home and recording kids' records under the moniker Casper Baby Pants. Chris isn't interested in sacrificing time away from his home and family to chase the spotlight. He'd rather enjoy the act of being creative in the moment. What happens after that is out of his hands. So let's get into it. And here's a marker. That'll help. I'm All a right. professional, man. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, here we are on my professional podcast, The Nordy Pod. And today, I'm really excited about this. We're talking to Chris Ballou, who is a local Seattle legend. And I think once you hear the story, you'll recognize that it's more just the Seattle thing. He's uh, had quite an impact on the popular music scene over the last couple of decades. So, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Pete. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's nice to be somewhere these days. <laughs> so <laughs> let's take this a little bit in chronological order. So I think people get some perspective and context of where you're from, what you've done. So, I mean, you grew up in Bellevue, which, you know, a suburb of Seattle, you know, went to the Bush School. And I guess I'm just really curious what it was like growing up and how that informed what you became. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I had a really nice childhood. Fantastic. In fact... I grew up three houses from your cousin, Johnny Nordstrom, and his brother, Jim. <laughs> yeah, and no, we, you said uh, you might have a story there, so this might be the time for that. I want to hear about there's that. There's several stories there. <laughs> um, 
But my big story that I remember is that when they moved from Yarrow Point, and technically I didn't grow up in Bellevue, I grew up on Yarrow Point. Okay. It's its own, its own <laughs> little town. We had a mayor, we had a town hall, we had our own little 4th of July parade. It was a full-on tiny town experience, which yes. was really, really fun. So anyway, they moved from Yarrow Point to Hunts Point, I believe. And as I remember it, Johnny uh, was told by his father that he couldn't take their go-kart with them. They had a, it wasn't a motorized go-kart, but it was a coaster, but it had a full-on adult-size Volkswagen steering wheel on it. Nice. You might remember it. I don't know. I Do you don't, remember no, the I go-kart? I really don't, but yeah, go, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. It was a fantastic go-kart and we had a perfect street for it. It was like a long downhill coast. Anyway, Johnny, I think if I remember, he wanted like $50 for it or something crazy. And I, I ended up picking away at his logic enough that I got him down to 50 cents. And I'm, <laughs> I remember going home and taking my piggy bank apart. And I had a John F. Kennedy 50 cent piece. And I went back down the street, gave it to Johnny, and he gave me the go-kart. So I always feel like I kind of, you know, like negotiated with a Nordstrom, which was... Uh, kind of a business triumph for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that speaks well for his retailing acumen. I don't know. I'll have to ask Johnny about that. <laughs> well, you know, he had some, I was like, Johnny, what else are you going to do with this go-kart? You know, I'm the only customer. Come on. <laughs> so, <laughs> some early lessons of supply and demand playing out there. That's true. And then point. I have I have one other uh, memory, which was Jim, his older brother. One time it was me and uh, my friend, the Thiele's lived right across from the Nordstrom's and me and uh, Steve. Steve Thiele and Dave Thiele were great friends. So it was, I think it was me, my brother, and the Thiele kids were beckoned into the basement of that house that they lived in on Euro Point by Jim. And then he locked the door and he told us we had to sing Rock the Boat in a round, like a four-way round. He wanted us, me to start, and then my brother. And it was this thing, and we kept messing it up. You know, rock the boat, don't rock the boat, baby. What was that, the Hughes the Corporation you're testing me? That, that, is that it? There you go. Okay. I think you're right. All that right. feels right. So we're screwing it up, and he's like, no, 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 you got to do it again. And then he starts saying, I'm not letting you out of this basement until you guys do this song perfectly. And I remember kind of thinking it was funny, and then in my little kid mind, I was probably seven or eight at the time, I thought, I'm never getting out of this basement. <laughs> so I, I got to ask Jim about that, too. So I mean, was this pre you being a musician in some way or having that kind of talent that was out there and known? I mean, did he pull you in locking the basement because they knew that hey, that Chris Blue can really <laughs> sing. So I got to get him in this thing. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think at this point I was more of a music fan. I was, you know, at the age of eight, seven, eight, nine, whatever, I was doing piano lessons but I wasn't as much creating my own stuff. And just listening to the Beatles nonstop was my, you know, major talent <laughs> at that point. But um, it is a funny memory because it sort of haunts me it, it, because he was so driven to get this thing right. And I, somehow maybe it infected me with a drive to get harmonies correct or something. I don't know. <laughs> Who, could, he had a big influence on you. Who knew? Yeah, it could be. The Nordstrom influence runs deep, you know, business acumen and uh, tight <laughs> harmonies is what I learned from the Nordstrom. Oh I also God. learned, also, as a side note with the store, my mom had polio when she was a kid and her feet were different sizes and she could go to Nordstrom and they would break apart two sets of shoes so she could have a pair of shoes that fit her feet. And uh, 
I always remember that as being so cool and nice and generous, and it made her feel like she had somewhere to go to get some quality footwear. You know what's amazing about that is, you know, we've been doing this podcast now for about a year, and it's come up a few times that, you know, that's a policy, because we don't really advertise that policy, but we do it. Right. And uh, the amount of goodwill that that's created, and just like you telling that story, we've had listeners to this show call in and send emails and talk about it. So, yeah, it's been a subject we've talked about here before on on the Nordy Pod. So thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It always impressed me. And uh, so anytime I needed new shoes, every new school year, we went to Nordstrom's to get new shoes. And we also had the Nordy dolls. Oh, yes. We loved we loved our Nordies. I think that was like the most successful stuffed animal ever because it sort of had, <laughs> it had no real features. <laughs> so you could pretend it was anything. It's a hippo. It's a monkey. You know? Yeah. I, if for people are probably wondering what the heck is that? It's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to maybe uh, talk about that one on the future episode. So, yeah, you know, you sure. ended up going to Bush and all that. So at what point did music and actually creating music become part of like your identity? You went more than a music fan to a person that is actually playing music. Well, really it was, you know, I grew up listening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the album, just over and over and over. I got it when I was about two and a half in 1967 at Christmas time, my brother had bought it for my parents and they just filed it away with their Andy Williams and Don Ho records. And I, I, <laughs> I think I you and I looked... grew up in the same house. Yeah. I think we had some of those too. <laughs> so I put it on and just fell in love with the journey that my mind took when I listened to that record. And so when I got to the age when I, it was time for me to feel like I could make music I wanted to join that stream, if that makes sense. I wanted to flow in that river of being narrative and psychedelic and every song sounds different and all that. So my early attempts at it were kind of embarrassing and weird. And, you know, I only had two little boom boxes that I could go back and forth with. I didn't have any professional equipment, but I definitely felt like my intention was, okay, I'm going from listening now to wanting to join the Beatles <laughs> in that realm of creativity that's going to turn on people's imaginations and make them see things. Huh. Uh, so so that's kind of why I started doing it. And then pretty soon after I started writing, I kind of, the Beatles kind of dropped off and I got into um, like Blue Oyster Cult and Nazareth and uh, stuff like that. And then I got into synthesizers and like Space age, new new age, I guess at the time, music, and then I get into new wave and and how punk rock and new wave kind of melded together. And I wanted to use it all. I just felt like my paint box or my palette from an early age really wanted to be super wide and varied. I've still to this day never quite understood people who just say like, I'm into hillbilly music or I'm into rockabilly or I'm into classical. I love it all. I just want to like take the emotional content from each style and see what it's like if you put, you know, classical into Hawaiian. <laughs> what does that feel like? Yeah. So did you come from a family that were musicians? And so your approach to this was as a musician or more of kind of a, you know, the cultural zeitgeist of all the stuff going on and being a fan? Like, how, what was your approach to music when you were young? Well, I started piano lessons when I was four and did that kind of intensely until I was 13 or 14. I was kind of being groomed to be a classical pianist. So did it take right away? I mean, were you instantly like, 
I can do this. I'm good at this. And so it becomes part of your personal identity. I'm a musician. I can play these things. You know, not really. I think I have always had a sort of standoffish relationship with virtuosity. And I, I felt it as a gut feeling early on. And then now I finally kind of figured out what it is about virtuosity that doesn't turn me on. I always think in terms of, I hear this term, uh, caveman drums. People talk about like, doom, da, doom, doom, da, doom, right? And it's just caveman. I like the idea of caveman being applied to every instrument. <laughs> uh, you know, like how simple and kind of like, I don't know, accessible. Yeah. In, a, in a way, that's what turned me on about punk rock. Because it was not about proficiency or virtuosity. It was more about emotion and, uh, you know, in some cases, protest. So I was just more turned on by the emotional content of simplicity than virtuosity. Virtuosity always, to me, it just sounded like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to look at you. I want to look at what you have to say, but I don't want to look at you. Yeah. I, I'm not really into like hero worship in, you know, and the cult of personality in uh, the music business. Or So anyway, early on, to really answer your question, no, it wasn't about feeling proficient or, you know, skilled. It was more just emotion. Like, I think that sounds cool, and that sounds cool. Ah, uh, yay, I'm making something, yay. It was more like being a kid and just drawing, you know, yeah. or, or just... Tim and I, my brother, Tim and I, actually, on Yarrow Point, there where we grew up, we would spend countless hours with Legos building little cars, or we'd put an assignment out, build a car, build a spaceship, and it would take us an hour to build these things, and in the meantime, we would be sort of parallel playing uh, with words. We would just be riffing and talking and singing and stuff, and I always think about that as sort of like my real kind of core directive is to just enjoy myself being creative on a daily basis right now because what happens to the music when it's released whether it's successful or not is totally not up to me so all I really have is right now yeah. and that sensation like I had with my brother on those long rainy days building Legos just being present yeah so fast forward a little bit you end up playing music with Beck as he's kind of becoming a thing so talk a little bit about what got you this place that now all of a sudden you're in and around people where stuff's happening, you know, like with that Beck experience? Yeah, well, um, definitely in Seattle, it was really easy to kind of like throw people together, book a show, have fun, make it part of your daily life. Like I'm saying, like, you know, it just made life better to on a Tuesday night because we didn't have the Internet. We were bored and uh, out of boredom comes you know, there's a vacuum created in boredom that you got to fill with something. So that's what we filled it with. And, uh, you know, I met Beck through a friend, Mary Lou Lord, who shared a publisher with Beck. And so I was in the early days of the presidents kind of forming and the presidents were just another in a long series of bands that I, you know, concocted. And uh, Mary Lou called me and said, this guy Beck is getting signed and he needs a band and you should be in his band. Now, this is like if your phone rang and somebody said, you know, Bobby and the astronauts are going to be massive and you have to be in their band. And you're like, Bobby and the astronauts? I don't know who Bobby and the astronauts are. So, um, so yeah, Beck, I kind of, Beck was not a household name at this point. No, 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 not at all. It was just a word. It was a one syllable. What? You know, like, hmm. I don't know. So... Um, I kind of ignored her. And then she called me back and said, we're going to be in Seattle. She was kind of accompanying him on this West Coast residency tour for him to get his feet wet, to get ready to be a touring musician because he'd gotten signed. 
And she said, why don't you come meet him and watch him play and then see if you connect. So I went to the crocodile and he came in and we talked and then I watched him play and it was just him with an acoustic guitar. And that whole thing that happened with me and Sergeant Peppers and the visual trip that I took happened again, watching Beck alone with a guitar. I could hear every word and movies were going off in my head. I mean, it was such a vivid, like, synesthesia experience. Huh. And that's what I told him afterwards, and we really bonded over that idea of, like, lyrics being visual like that. And at that point, was he just a total stripped-down acoustic guitar and voice? There was no effects, there's no nothing, that's yeah. just him and he'd the never, He'd never had a band. He was going through all kinds of crazy changes, and I, I, I went to Olympia and played on the One Foot in the Grave record. He, he needed a slide guitarist, and I, I said yes. I can play slide guitar. I did not know how to play slide guitar at all. I didn't even own a slide. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I went to the trading musician. I think I did this like almost in a straight line. I went to the trading musician, bought the guitar, bought a slide, went to the Greyhound bus station, went down to Olympia, got off the bus, walked to Calvin Johnson's house, went down in the basement. They put me in a booth with the guitar and said, play slide on this song. And I'd never heard the song. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just kind of hunted around and I, you know, he wasn't after again, virtuosity or proficiency. He was after vibe and melody and kind of like the fearlessness of being lost and searching kind of thing. Yeah. And I passed the test and I got the job. And, um, that was when I became a professional. That was my first like moment of being, uh, paid to play music live on a stage. And I went right from zero to hero. You know, I was like in a tour bus. Well, we did a van tour first and then we did a tour bus tour. So I never slogged it out in the trenches with my punk rock band, you know, like eating moldy sandwiches in Nebraska or something. <laughs> I, went, I went right into the like lap of luxury kind of. So, and I lived with him in LA because I was the only band member not from LA. And so he graciously let me live with him at his house. And so we spent a lot of time talking about his transition and what it was like going from being somebody who lived in a cardboard box and worked at a video store to being signed on a major label and dealing with publishing and like being grown up and everything. And to his credit, I always want to say this, he stopped smoking pot, he stopped drinking alcohol, he got focused. He would be in the back of the van on tour with a Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, just absorbing history and culture and like all the stuff that he wanted to regurgitate and play with and, and collage with lyrically. He was like ingesting more and more. So we had fantastic conversations. And when he had to go do some like solo acoustic thing on a radio station or something, I came along and we were a little bit of a duo for a while. And it was a great experience. Um, it was kind of like going to fame school. You know, I got to stand next to Beck's tornado of change. And then I, after two tours, I quit and went back to the president's, which had already started and I'd put on hold. And then I had my own fame tornado to yeah. <laughs> navigate. So I, it couldn't have worked out better. It was just an incredible opportunity to kind of um, gain perspective before I was thrown into my own storm. All that being said, though, my own storm was incredibly disorienting and weird. And Yeah, and well, we're going to get to that. So, <laughs> yeah. but, so were you then with Beck when he kind of went from being 
an underground kind of this is interesting to he's got a big hit what, like was loser was that happening then uh, that that had been recorded yeah there was an ep out i joined the band before the album mellow gold came out okay um and i and i played on that album one foot in the grave that's the one yeah. that was my audition is playing bass and slide guitar on one foot in the grave and uh, so, yeah, it was right between a four-song EP that was out with Loser on it and then the album Mellow Gold coming out is when the band was formed and, and I was invited into that scene. So you were, were you at the end of that? Were you playing like arenas and stuff? I mean, was it that big of a deal or were you still playing no, clubs? No, those first couple tours, well, at least the first tour for sure, they were doing this strategy that was kind of questionable but was not uh, unheard of in that time, which is that you book venues that are too small. And then the line going out the door is around the block and the clamor for tickets is crazy and people are like, and then we had to add second shows and it was rough. I remember Beck and I both got pneumonia on that tour and we ended up in the hospital on the same day, uh, the day Kurt Cobain uh, killed himself, actually. Oh, we were, Beck and I were in um, paper gowns being seen simultaneously by the same doctor like we were like you know he was our pediatrician it felt felt like we were seven years old <laughs> we were at the doctor <laughs> but um yeah so it was a rough it was kind of rough uh i quit before he went on to kind of adopt a more broad stroke you know entertainment style almost like a james brown like get this cape off yeah me. i'm gonna do more kind of thing uh, when I was in the band, it was a little more Sonic Youth Jr., and uh, it didn't jibe with what I wanted to present, which was way more like, come on in, everybody, it's party time. He was also kind of trying to undo the the uh, narrative around the song Loser, that he was like the king of the slackers or yeah. all that stuff really bugged him. He wasn't super into the song Loser, and that was another lesson for me is like, huh. don't release a song you're not totally into because it could become a hit, yeah. <laughs> and then you're going to be stuck. Um, so anyway, as he was working all that out is when I was in the band and then he worked it out and he found his voice and I'm glad that he didn't find his voice when I was in the band because I might not have quit. You ah. know? So it all worked out. So you come back to town and you get the presidents going and my memory of that, it really kind of took off fast and it was so different than everything else that was going on around here at the time. I mean, you know, there was that was now at a time when Seattle's completely blowing up and there's all kinds of grunge type bands and bands getting signed and all this stuff going on. And you hearken back to something that was much more kind of like Young Fresh Fellows or something, which was cool, but so different. I mean, was it conscious that you crafted this sound and this image that was so different than everything else in Seattle? Yeah, I think it was a combination. It was part conscious, part a happy accident that my evolution as a songwriter arrived at a certain style right when the president started. So I had been writing songs. I'd lived in Boston and New York, and I'd been writing songs that were kind of uh, like heavy. In fact, when when Nevermind came out, uh, Nirvana's you know big smash album, I was trying to write that album basically without knowing it. And when I heard that album, I was like, oh, well, that's way better than what I was trying to do. I'll just stop trying to do what I was trying to do and listen to that record instead. So the dark side was something I was playing with before the presidents kind of came together. But then it happened that I really arrived at a more realized version of myself as a songwriter and started to invite in uh, levity and silliness more because actually it was in Boston. I went into a bar and there was this guy 
with his eyes closed, playing a 12-string guitar on the little stage in the back, and he was singing these groovy folk songs about monkeys and froggies and pigs and chickens and animals and silly stuff. But it had gravitas, or it had weight, because it was old. It sounded old, and it sounded silly. And I was like, what is that? I had been writing songs that had animals and stuff in them and kind of silliness, but I'd always kind of pushed them aside like, oh, they're second-class citizens. I want to write like songs about girls and ideas, you know, and heavy stuff. Anyway, seeing this guy, who turned out his name was Spider John Kerner, and he was part of the blues scene in the 60s, and then he kind of decided, I'm not going to try to pretend I'm an old black man. I'm going to use all this old public domain um, folk music to be my kind of creative stem cell. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, kind of a long story with him, but that turned on a light bulb in my head, and I was like, oh, I can have some heaviness, but I can counteract it with levity in the lyrics. And that's right when the president started to uh, coalesce, was when that kind of came around. Simultaneously, though, I remember watching the 1992, I think it was, MTV Video Music Awards, and it was all about Soundgarden and Alice in Chains yep. and grunge and heaviness and all that stuff. And I definitely remember I was living with my parents. I had no money. I was watching MTV on their cable. And I remember thinking, okay, this, this is great. This is great music. I love it. But it's time to bring the clowns back into the party. <laughs> <laughs> so you get that president's thing going. And I remember it was super buzzy and it was really cool and it was it was different. And, you know, there was a lot of attention there. And, you know, you record your first record w with Conrad at Uno, I suppose, at Egg yeah, Studios. At is that Egg. where you did it? Yeah, we ended up making the first album. Well, first we went to the laundry room and recorded a 13-song cassette, or 10-song cassette called Froggy Style with Barrett Jones. Oh, sure. Who ended up... Yeah. Yeah, Barrett and Dave Grohl made the uh, first Foo Fighters yeah. record after that at the Laundry Room, the old Laundry Room on uh, Queen Anne. Yeah. So we did that, and then we hooked up with Conrad, and four of the songs from the demo tape we felt were done, and they got moved over to the debut record. And then we recorded nine fresh songs with Conrad to make a 13 song album. And at that point you weren't signed or anything. I mean, like Conrad no. put it out on Pop Llama. I mean, that was the deal. Yeah, Conrad put it out on Pop Llama and we thought that'd be the end of it. You know, uh, just there it is. But somewhere in there, Jason was booking Mo, the club Mo, and uh, he just decided, you know what? I'm going to put the presidents on every chance I get. And or we're going to say yes to every show uh, that's given to us. So we played the Crocodile and Mo like five times a week <laughs> for a, a month or something. And that was what did it. it. You know, also it was the fertile ground of grunge having happened. This is post Kurt Cobain um, passing away. And so everybody's turning kind of a little bit away from that and looking for the next thing. What's next, you know? So you could book a show on a Tuesday night at the Crocodile and the place would be packed because everybody was wondering who was next. So at that point, did you own the record yourself or did Conrad own it? And then you, you sold it to Columbia. What, what exactly happened there? All of a sudden there's a bunch of buzz. Does Columbia yeah. show up and say, okay, we want to take this record and put it out? Well, we did a ASCAP showcase show on a Bumbershoot weekend in 94, I want to say. And unbeknownst to me, there were seven major label representatives in the audience scouting us. And I'm so glad I didn't know because we put on a, you know, whacktastical, usual, uh, silly ass, heavy duty show. And um, the next day we had seven major labels sniffing around. Um, and so we had to put on our big boy pants like real fast. 
And uh, after a lot of back and forth, we got down to Maverick, which was Madonna's label, and yeah. Columbia. And we had a business meeting with Madonna. And she totally got us. She gave me some incredible advice. She was like, because your music is fun and funny, you will never get critical respect for your craft. So don't expect it. You know, don't get mad about that. Focus on the people that love you and, you know, play for them. And that, you know, saved me a lot of uh, heartache later. So, uh, well, okay. So you got to I... stop there. So, I mean, how weird is that, that you go from like playing music, your friends, <laughs> I've recorded music at Egg. I mean, you know, the ceiling's low yeah. and it's scrappy. I mean, there's nothing that feels grandiose about any of that. And literally within months, you're sitting there talking to Madonna. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's a whole story around that Madonna thing. Oh, my God. Tell, I, go for it. Okay. We're I'm, in, I'm looking we're for in, the Madonna story. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, we knew she was interested and she came to see us at the Dragonfly the night before the meeting. And she was so obvious. You know, it's one of those things where... Uh, somebody famous doesn't want to be recognized. So they wear like dark sunglasses and a headscarf and they look like they're in an MG in a, you know, Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we all knew it was her. I almost called her out, but I didn't do it. So anyway, the next day we go to the, uh, her offices for a meeting and she's late and we are young and restless. And so we go out in the parking lot and we're thrown around a little Nerf football and finally, an assistant opens the door to this hallway that's adjacent to the parking lot and says, uh, oh, she's here. Come on in. It's time to go. Everybody goes in, but I'm kind of biding my time, throwing the football up in the air and catching it. And I thought, I got close to the door and it was propped open. And I thought, could I throw the football into the hallway and then run and catch it in the hallway? So I kind of did a little arc and did that. And when I landed... I felt something next to my shoe and I was wearing thick leather 1920s brakeman boots, like thick boots. I looked down and there's Madonna's dog, this little chihuahua, which was all she had in the world at that time. She had no kids, no Guy Ritchie, none of that stuff. <laughs> and this little tennis, like ping pong ball headed chihuahua was right <laughs> next to my boot, like shivering. And I just, my heart went in my throat. I almost just completely crushed her dog. I'm all alone <laughs> in this blank industrial park hallway. Nobody's around, no cameras, no nothing. I just like move away from the dog and go into <laughs> the meeting room. And she's still not there. And I get kind of restless again. And I'm up looking at the, uh, you know, books and albums on the shelf. And it's quiet in the room. Nobody's talking. And she must have come in the room and gone shh to the rest of the people because she walked right up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder vigorously. And I turned around and Madonna was like an inch from my face. <laughs> and that was the second time that day that my heart leapt into my throat. <laughs> so, but Madonna never knew you almost killed her dog with your big boots. She never, <laughs> she never knew. knew. Oh, I've yeah. told the story. I don't know if she's heard it. Probably not. But... If you're out there, Madonna, I'm sure she listens to this podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. So the, cat, the cat's out of the bag now. But yeah, she, but she did have a lot of respect for what we were trying to do. You know, she got that we cared deeply about our craft while the presentation was to appear to not care at all. And uh, she got that. But in the end, Columbia just felt like a bigger hammer. Um, while we were waiting for Madonna, her assistant, Guy Osiri, popped in a cassette of somebody they had just signed. He's all excited. He's like, check out this girl we just signed. And it was Alanis Morissette. Oh, wow. <laughs> which, which again, hearing that name, we're just like, you know, Bobby and the Little Toes. I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. 
And it was, you know, we liked the song. She, he played uh, the big hit song for us. Uh, but if we had signed with Madonna, we would have totally been lost in the narrative underneath Alanis. We signed with Columbia and we were the heroes for at least a year on that uh, label. So, you know, I remember going to the Farmer's Daughter uh, Hotel and sitting on a bed with Jason and Dave and just going, what do we do? We have to pick Maverick or Columbia. What do we do? We didn't know. And we just instinctively went with the bigger fish. And I'm glad we did. Did they offer you more money or was it just you thought it was a better opportunity? They offered us a deal whereby we licensed the debut record to them for seven years. So we did not take any big advance. We were a very lean machine. You know, we wanted to go on tour and make people happy and come home healthy and wealthy. <laughs> so we did a bus tour a couple times and we looked at the bottom line. We're like, no more buses. That's, that's out. So part of that ethos was being able to leverage taking nothing up front and uh, not giving them the record in perpetuity. Which so that, also means you, you own that record then. So when it was done, their yeah. seven-year run, I mean, all the money that comes through with publishing and all of it, you own all of it. We own all of it. It's fantastic. So And so it, Conrad and Dave and Jason and I are four-way owners of that record. Oh. Yeah. So, and now it's, it's really happening and you guys are totally part of the popular cultural zeitgeist. I'm just so, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've been asked this a zillion times, but I mean, what the heck was that like? I mean, you're a guy that's been playing music for all these pure reasons, and now it's a commercial enterprise. I think about, you know, was it 95 to 97 when it was, I mean, you guys were playing a ton of shows, you were all over the place. What was that like? It was a lot of things all at once. It was um, thrilling and validating And the live show experience was incredibly fulfilling. And I remember just feeling sometimes like I was disintegrating into the audience. It just felt, it felt like every fantasy I ever had of what it might be like to be in the Beatles, to feel like love coming from a big group of people. Oh, I'm getting a little like teary just thinking about (laughs) it. It really was goosebumps on goosebumps. The mechanics of it were a bummer. You mean like uh, the business part of it, you mean? Um, well, so when we first got signed or that we were experiencing this whole thing, we kind of uh, split into a three-headed monster. Jason was late night PR. He would get drunk with the people that we needed to get drunk with. Dave was business. He read Donald Passman's book about the music business and could read and uh, translate business documents for us and had ideas about strategy. I th- believe it was his idea to do the seven-year license. And then I was creative. I would be sheltered from a lot of the hassle and stay home and write songs and demo songs for new stuff and try to live as much of a carefree life as I could to kind of bottle that joy. So we did have things, you know, pretty well under control, but there was the sort of day-to-day, like being on tour, not being around family or being around Seattle. Uh, A lot of the joy and energy that was put into the president's first record was me moving from the Northeast, Boston and New York finally back to Seattle and just being reminded, oh, why was I toiling away in the the Northeast when I could have been in the Northwest? And so that feeling of landing back in my home town and just the sights, the smells, the atmosphere, the decay, even, you know, like the rainforest and all that stuff, it just permeated the joy that I felt in the music. Anyway, I was taken, we were taken away from everything that was essential to making the music. So yeah, it was a lot of 
positive stuff and a lot of negative stuff. And eventually the positive stuff sort of started to fade off. Like the thrill of playing for a lot of people kind of became overshadowed by the inconvenience and the stress and not eating very well, not sleeping very well. There were periods of, you know, drinking too much alcohol, staying up late, just not taking care of my body. I didn't really have a concept about how to take care of my body at that time, like I do now. So um, eventually I kind of snapped and I went to a band meeting in 1997 and said, well, first order of business, I quit. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, There was mixed reaction. I think Jason was pretty upset. Dave, I think, was less upset because he also was experiencing some of the frustrations I was about the balance between work and home and and just having a balanced life. But um, I do regret kind of dropping the bomb like that on them. I was going through all this inner turmoil for like a year before I did that. So to me, it was a long buildup. To them, it was just like, boom, here it is. So yeah, that, uh, you know, that w- it was tricky. That's what it was like. It was like everything all at once. Gosh. So what kind of tours were you on? And again, that couple year period, were, were you guys out there as headliners? Like we, I, I've seen, you know, clips, of you guys playing big festivals and stuff. But tell us about a couple of the tours, like who you were guys were paired up with and where you played. Well, first of all, we weren't paired up with anybody because uh, I was uh, heavily influenced by my old buddy, Mark Sandman, the lead singer songwriter from the band Morphine, who taught me how to play the two string. He had a philosophy, which was don't open up for anybody. Just do your own show, even if it has to be much smaller, because everybody is there for you. And the connection is what it's about. Standing up in front of somebody else's crowd, even if it's 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people, it just doesn't mean anything really because it's just a exercise in publicity. You know, it's not a right. going to be a vibe. So we, we only opened up for like a tiny handful of people for special circumstances. We did the last two nights of Tom Petty's 21 night run at the Fillmore in San Francisco. We opened up for Soundgarden, for two nights because Rocket from the Crypt couldn't do it at the last second in Soundgarden because Kim Thile was a big champion of the president. So, and we knew those guys. So we opened up for them in a hometown shows turned yeah. out to be their last North American shows before they broke up. It was a big deal. Anyway, all by way of saying we did our own tours in clubs basically. And the occasional festival, we never went out. I think the longest we were ever out was like six weeks, maybe four We just couldn't handle being away from home that long. We weren't willing to kind of, you know, sacrifice everything (laughs) to be out on tour. But yeah, so best gig ever. Oh my God, this gig we did in uh, in the '90s. I don't remember exactly where it was. I think it was somewhere somewhere in Norway. It was like a maybe a 250 person club. And that night, for some reason, every song clicked musically. The lyrics. As they came out of my mouth, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> people were singing along. People were laughing. I'd say a line and people would crack up. I was like, this is like ACDC doing stand-up. It's <laughs> the greatest <laughs> feeling in the world. That's amazing. Okay, worst gig ever. <laughs> okay, immediately what comes to mind is a promotional show in New Orleans or somewhere in the southeast in the summer on a weird little floating restaurant with like three, <laughs> three like one-stop record distributor people. Yeah. I think it was like a super closed circuit promotional thing. 
and it was like 104, and we were just sweating. We were barely able to stand up, and our instruments were all out of tune, and nobody really cared, and we were just dying. Every time I get into a sauna as an adult, I think about that show. <laughs> okay, that, that's a good one. So another question. You yeah. play, you talk about you play the two-string guitar, bass, the bass guitar. Look, I play bass, I play guitar, and I still don't know what you're talking about when you're talking <laughs> about playing the, the bass guitar. Like, well, here it are, is. are you forming chords with this with two strings? Oh, there it is. This okay. is it for those at home. I'm Which holding strings it up to you. you have on there? Is that like an A and a D or what do you got going on there? When Mark and I invented this instrument, we sat down with a box of strings and a pair of uh, calipers and we just figured out what tension and what tuning was right. It turns out C sharp, G sharp, which also turns out to be the low key that a lot of grunge bands detuned to. Oh, yeah. We turned out to be in a key that was emotionally exactly on the same level as the heaviest of the musics that were out at that time. So, I mean, I'm, I've seen you play, so it, you play it almost look like you're strumming it, like you're playing a guitar. Are yeah. you playing both the strings at the same time most of the time, or are you just playing single notes? Now, there's riffs, there's like... There's, you know... <laughs> So there's a little riffy stuff you can do that's real kind of rubbery and... Yeah. Um, that's this particular instrument's you know, characteristic. and has a very microphonic pickup, so it was really kind of clanky and clonky um, and responded to distortion really well. But a lot of it was translating our influences through these limited instruments made it sound fresh. Like for me, every song we have is like, okay, Lump is me trying to write a Buzzcock song. Mach 5 is me writing a Kiss song. But you can't tell because it's going through this weird instrument. Yeah. So was that all kind of by design or was that like a happy accident? I mean, did you start out saying, OK, we're going to we're going to do different instrumentations and voicings and like it's going to be completely different or did it just evolve it, that way? It just evolved. I had a little acoustic guitar uh, before all this happened and I kept breaking strings. I got down to four. I couldn't afford more strings. So I made an alternate tuning and then I got down to three. Then I met Mark. And he had a two-string, he played a two-string slide, but he had a version that you could fret and handed it to me. And I went, oh, this is it. You know, this is exactly what I've been kind of inching toward. So and, were, uh, were, were Dave and then later Andrew, were they just playing a straight-up six-string or did they have some kind of They were playing three-string guitar? guitars. A three-string guitar. Was, yeah, three-string. So I was two-string, they are three-string. Dave, in the 96, 97 era, he went to a six-string against our wishes <laughs> kind of <laughs> but he's a hot shot on a six string so we did, we couldn't really complain too yeah. much but uh anyway yeah so it was a two and a three the idea was to make it sound like one big instrument not really to sound like bass and guitar and we achieved that in the beginning but then the as we went on like sound guys and stuff that we had would make me sound really more like a bass because we were in big venues and yeah our little tiny vaudevillian weird sound didn't translate to fifty thousand people so yeah um, so you've created like a whole second career for yourself still as a musician, but doing kids music as yeah. Casper baby pants. I mean, it must be satisfying to you. you seem like you lean into it with a lot of enthusiasm. And I, and I know this because as my kids were young, we listened to a lot of Casper baby pants around our house. Oh, that's great. That's great, man. Well, actually Casper was not, was like my, maybe my second. So the first career I did after the presidents was music for commercials and movies and films. And uh, I created an 800 piece library of licensable music that I managed. And that was fantastic. 
Then I started doing the Casper. Well, then the presidents got back together after a five-year break, and we're doing version two with Andrew, basically. Dave was there at the beginning, and then Andrew. So as I'm doing that, I start doing the Casper thing. I did the Casper thing for 12 years, made 19 albums, uh, played 1,300 shows while I was doing the presidents. So that was nuts. And then when the pandemic hit, I had three records, Casper records in the in the vault. And so I parsed them out during the pandemic. And then I kind of put the Casper thing away. And it was incredibly satisfying. But it's funny, I look back on it now, and maybe sometimes I listen to a few of those songs. The chemistry that happened in me that made me so passionate about that palette and that music is gone. Like really, I just I just used it up. I mean, nineteen albums. Well, I no, mean, I on. mean you're it's certainly <laughs> prolific, and and your thing at least for the parents of the we, we were we were super happy to be listening to Casper Baby yeah. Pants, and and the kids loved it, and you know, I, at least to me, it felt so genuine. So it was great. I, I thought it translated really well. I loved it. I was genuinely excited to make music for parents. I always said that it was parents music, not kids music. You know, like 90% of my decisions in the studio and songwriting were for parents um, because no kid had ever bought a CD, you know, like, yeah. plus I really wanted to reduce stress for parents. There's a whole, I mean, we don't have time to get into it, but there's an entire philosophy and purpose behind the Casper Baby Pants thing which is really about stress reduction and unifying kids and parents over the love of the same song, you know, like sharing the love of the same yeah. song genuinely versus like, you know, baby shark, which makes parents want to kill themselves. <laughs> um, I just, I don't want to get it too deep into it, but I feel like there's a lot of kids music that's like criminal, you know, it's like, yeah. it splits the family up. Anyway, so there was a, and that, that's not even the whole story with Casper. That's a whole thing. But um, it re I really had like drive and focus. And now I'm making this solo music uh, that has a different drive and focus. It's all about, you know, the experience of being alive, life, death, kind of uh, existential, uh, existential psychedelic fuzz pop is wow. what I'm making now. <laughs> okay. It's a whole new genre. Well, look, Chris, it is. you're super nice to take this time with me. You've been really generous with your time and, and sharing all these stories. And I, you know, look, I'm a fan. It's, it's fun for me. I'm, I'm glad I, I know you a little bit, and I feel like I know you so much better now. So anyway, th thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. And you know what? Tell uh, Johnny that if he wants his go-kart back, we can talk. <laughs> and tell... Tell Jim not to rock the boat, rock the boat, baby. <laughs> that, that, that might be a, a cover for you in your new um, psychedelic yeah. fuzzed out existential band. A, a cover. I'll, I'll make the boat. I'll make him sing the sound, the background vocals. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> All right, Chris, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope that you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to The Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. 
You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line, and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time as we deck the halls for a very special holiday edition of the Nordy Pod. We're going behind the scenes during the most wonderful time of the year to show all of the hard work and preparation that goes into making Nordstrom light up for the holidays. And you better watch out. We may even have a chat with the big man himself. Yeah, Santa. That's what we're talking about. So join us next time on the Nordy Pod. Nordy Pod.